Matthew 11, verses 20 to 24. That's page uh, 689, if you're using the Bible in the seat back in front of you. Matthew 11, 20 to 24. We had looked forward to it for weeks. We went over the menu again and again. We bought the ingredients with care and prepared them with love and with anticipation. We scrubbed, we cleaned, we tidied, and we tidied again. Finally, the day came. We spread the tablecloth, we set the table, we lit the candles, we put some quiet music on. He arrived. It was magical. He was far more wonderful than we'd even imagined. Words cannot describe our time together. It was even better than people had said. One thing we can tell you, we're believers now. But all too quickly, the night was gone. He left, and here we are with our memories. It's back to work, back to life. Now what? Now what? We see in today's story that the answer to that question is the most important answer we'll ever give. This was the question faced and the answer given by several cities in today's story, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Jesus had visited them. He had chosen to be with them. He had done miracles for them, wowing them with his healing power, mending and curing all who were broken and sick, pouring out his love, touching their lives and no doubt their hearts as well. Capernaum was, in fact, the base of Jesus' ministry. Maybe they had a sign on the edge of town, Welcome to Capernaum, home of the Jesus ministry. Maybe their tourist bureau had a slogan like, Visit Capernaum, Jesus heals here. As it was, their town verse seemed to be Isaiah 14, 13, We will be lifted up to heaven. That's all very fine and good, but now after all is said and done, after Jesus has visited them, now what? Evidently, the answer of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum was business as usual. Life goes on, and these cities pretty much got on with it. In today's story, Jesus evaluates these cities' answer to the now what question. And his evaluation is compelling and sobering, and it serves as a strong warning for us. And in Jesus' evaluation, we discover more of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Woe to you, Chorazin, Jesus cries out. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Capernaum. Woe is a term of pity and of, of sorrow. It's not an angry word as much as it's an anguished word. If the miracles performed in you, Jesus continues, had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, two notoriously wicked cities, or in Sodom, a notoriously wicked city which God had already notoriously destroyed with fire and brimstone, they would have repented long ago and humbled themselves in sackcloth and ashes. And Sodom would not have been destroyed, but would have remained to this day. It will be more bearable on the day of judgment for those cities, Jesus says, than for Chorazin and Bethsaida. And Capernaum will go down to the depths 
down to Hades, the text literally says, the realm of the dead. Dale Bruner has written a wonderful commentary on Matthew's gospel, and he does such a good job with this passage that I'm going to quote him several times this morning. Listen to how he summarizes and applies what Jesus is saying here. The people of Bethsaida, Chorazin, and Capernaum had experienced Jesus and had seen his power. But merely having had Jesus and his miracles in their midst is not salvation. Jesus Christ has been present in his church and word in Christendom. And there he has done great miracles. But that finally is not the point. The point is, have we changed as a result? Are we still changing? Capernaum had almost made a town motto of Isaiah 14, 13, lifted to heaven, perhaps with a sense of civic pride in having had Jesus' ministry based in their town. Lifted up to heaven sounded then something like America's in God we trust now, a little like a boast. But Jesus is not interested in the sponsoring of his presence. He is interested in response to his presence. He's interested in repentance, changed life. Um, Bruner concludes, Christian, or Christian countries are in special trouble on Judgment Day, not because Jesus has not really been in their communities, but because he has. Jesus' presence without change can lead to a damnation deeper than Sodom's. That is the message of our text. Let me try to give Jesus' words a contemporary ring. Woe to you, Christian Community Church. Woe to you, St. Agatha's Church. Woe to you, First Denominational Church. If the knowledge of me and the presence of me given to you had been given to the seedy side of San Francisco and Las Vegas, to the worst of Hollywood and Wall Street and Washington, to the most extreme of Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, they would have been utterly transformed and redeemed years ago. They will fare better in God's judgment than will you churches. Whoa. Dale Bruner adds, those privileged to be in dynamic Christian churches or groups are persons not only of privilege but of fearful responsibility. For to have the presence of Christ's dynamic work and yet not to change one's way of living as a result is to make oneself more subject to the grim judgment of God than even Sodom. Every member of a church has Jesus. For Jesus is present in his word, in his people, in the sacraments. But Jesus does not have every member of his church. He has only those who under the impact of his miraculous grace are actually changing. And those who have Jesus and have not changed as a result are in the biggest trouble of all, Jesus warns. Jesus came, in other words, to bring salvation, and that salvation involves transformation. And those who fail to change, to be transformed, have in effect rejected Jesus and his salvation. The word Jesus uses for this change is repentance. Repentance. It means 
to turn around your life, to think differently, to have a new paradigm, a, a new perspective, and, and therefore to live differently. Jesus came to fix our broken world, to heal creation, to restore, to redeem, to reform, to reconcile. Jesus came to establish God's new world order, a revolution against all that is unjust and selfish and self-serving and arrogant. And Jesus is calling each of us to turn around, to change our lives, and to become more and more a part of what Jesus came to do. And this isn't just a decision we make once. It's a decision we make again and again, day after day. Constantly retuning our lives to the true north of Jesus' kingdom work. And when we welcome Jesus and we enjoy his blessings and we say that we believe in him, but we don't change and keep changing, Jesus warns us that we're in effect rejecting him. And therefore, only the harshest judgment awaits. That's clearly what Jesus' warning is in today's story. It reminds me of another story that Christian writer and commentator Warren Wearsby tells about a town years ago when a horse bolted and ran away with a wagon carrying a little boy. And seeing the child in danger, a young man risked his life to catch the horse and stop the wagon. The child who was saved, unfortunately, grew up to become a lawless man. And one day he stood before a judge to be sentenced for a serious crime. The prisoner recognized, though, that the judge was the man who years before had saved his life. He had a moment of hope, and he, he pled for mercy on the basis of that incident, reminding the judge that, that he was the boy whose life he'd saved. But the words from the bench silenced his plea. Young man, then I was your savior. Today I am your judge, and I must sentence you to be hanged. That, in effect, is Jesus' anguish warning of what lies ahead for these cities on whom he had poured out his miracles. And through this text, it's his warning to any of us as well who have enjoyed having Jesus around but have not allowed that experience to change our lives. It holds true for individuals. It holds true for churches and cities and countries. Well, this sobering story with its sobering message teaches us at least five things about Jesus. And let's take a look at them. First, we learn in the story that Jesus is the issue. Jesus is the issue. Tyre, uh, well, first of all, Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, and then Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom will be judged based on what they did with Jesus. Jesus is the issue. As we saw last week in verse 27, God the Father has put all things into Jesus' hands. That's in verse 27 of chapter 11. Only Jesus knows God the Father. And so Jesus alone can make him known. Jesus is the only authorized dealer, you might say, of genuine God relationships. 
Jesus alone is the one sent from God to save and to restore a broken world. God has declared Jesus to be this earth's rightful king. And, and Jesus is, or God is bit by bit, putting all things under Jesus' healing and restoring authority. And so what we do with Jesus is the issue. Not how good we've been. Not whether our intentions have been well-meaning. Not how many hours we've logged at church or in prayer. But what we do with Jesus. Now, this sounds exclusive, doesn't it? It is exclusive. But it's not my idea, and it's not the church's idea. It's what Jesus himself claimed. And if Jesus is right, why shouldn't God work this way? If God was willing to send his own son to perfectly express God's love, to perfectly reveal what God is like, to perfectly carry out God's restoration plan, and if Jesus offers himself to, to everyone who wants to come to him, as we saw that last week that he does, then why would we blame God for not giving us an option B or C or D? Who are we to say that option A isn't good enough? God has given us his son, invited us to embrace Jesus. And so what we do with Jesus is the issue. Second, Jesus wants and expects us to change. He came so that we would change, so that this whole world would change. The world was going on its merry way with its wars, its oppression, its uh, meanness, broken relationships, wasted lives, alienation from God and from one another and from ourselves. And Jesus has come to turn the tide, to, to set us on a new course, to, to forge for us a new future. And Jesus calls each of us to believe in him, to, to put our trust in him, and to turn our lives into line with that new course. He calls it repentance. Jesus expects us to change as, as we believe in him, as we trust him, as we follow him. We're to get in step with what he's doing. Jesus calls us to change how we treat other people. He calls us to change what we do with our money. He calls us to change how we see the world and what we believe. He calls us to change where we find our satisfaction and our delight. It's huge. It's such a big, all-encompassing transformation that, that it can't happen all at once. Which is why we have to keep changing. Is there anyone here who's arrived? No, not yet. Third, Jesus is not only our Savior, he's our judge as well. Last week we heard Jesus' wonderful, compassionate, tender invitation to everyone to come to him, to find an easy yoke and a light burden. I've been carrying my reminder of that easy yoke around in my pocket all week and pulling it out when I needed to remember it was a wonderful invitation that Jesus gives us, isn't it? The change Jesus calls us to is, is a good change. It brings healing. It, it makes us whole. It brings peace and contentment and freedom. 
Jesus is a Savior who's humble and meek. He, he calls us because He loves us. He wants to give us what's good. He wants to draw us close and to console us. And Jesus is also a judge. Not a mean, cruel, cold-hearted judge. Jesus is distraught about the path that Capernaum and the other cities are headed down. His cry of woe is like the cry of, of a mother warning her children not to run out into a busy street. Jesus is fair. Jesus is just. Jesus does what is right. And when the time for judgment comes, he will not flinch from administering justice. The best kind of people are those who know how to be tender and loving and who also know when to be tough and courageous. I remember one time a friend of mine was standing in line at a fast food place and the employee taking the orders was being really nasty and condescending to two minorities who were trying to order. And it, it, the nastiness seemed just to have to do with the color of their skin. And, and this went on, and finally my friend had had it, and right there in Burger King or wherever it was, she told the guy off, and she came to the folks' defense. Now, this friend isn't usually like that. She's usually respectful and kind and pleasant and nurturing, but she also has a heart of justice. Isn't that what real character is? Knowing how to be both kind and compassionate and gentle and knowing when to stand up for what's right. When someone is abusing the system, or oppressing others, or, or being destructive. Well, Jesus has these qualities in perfect balance. He burns for what's right and true. He's strong and courageous. He knows when judgment is called for. Yet he's tender and kind and merciful at all the right times, too. Don't we long to be led? by leaders like that in our families, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our cities, in our country. That's why God has entrusted Jesus with the authority to rule this world and to finally and forever establish justice here, to set all things right. And so Jesus is both savior and judge. Fourth, we learn that Jesus is judge of everyone. First for Christians, then also for everyone else. The Apostle Peter warns us in his letter, 1 Peter, that judgment begins with the household of God. Chapter 4, verse 17. Judgment begins with the household of God. It's the towns where Jesus had lived and ministered who knew him best that Jesus warns are facing judgment first, right? To quote Bruner again, interestingly, we have no record of Jesus preaching judgment to pagans. Jesus' words of severe warning and his frequent references to hell are all reserved for the privileged, for the old and new people of God, for the people who thought they were in. Bruner continues, judgment is a message for spiritual people, for Christians, who smile and wink when they hear what Jesus says. For comfortable Christians, in a word, for unreal Christians, 
You know, I can't help but think of the TV preachers who as soon as a disaster happens to someone else, they get on the TV and they pronounce that it's God's judgment on those godless people. Maybe we Christians should all be more concerned about where we stand with Jesus. Forget about what God or whether God is judging Haiti or, or wherever. What are we churches doing with the fact that Jesus has made himself known to us? Are we still changing? Is Jesus, or because Jesus is our judge, first and foremost. He's also, though, the judge of the whole world. Of pagan, godless places like Tyre and Sidon and Sodom. Of people who have never seen a Bible and have never heard the name Jesus. And this leads to our fifth and final lesson about Jesus from this story. And that is that his judgment is always fair and appropriate. Jesus judges each person, each city, each nation, based on what they did with the light they were given. And specifically on what they did with the knowledge of Jesus that was available to them. Because Jesus is the issue, right? That's why cities like Capernaum and countries like America and churches like CBC are judged most strictly. Jesus has been here. We have, have been given so much, and so much is expected of us. That's what Jesus says in, in Luke 12, 48, isn't it? For everyone who has been given much, or from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. This is a very simple point to grasp. My daughter Sarah is in first grade. My son Josiah is in fourth grade. And my wife Anne homeschools both of them. If Anne takes them to the zoo one day, and then when they get back, she gives them a free writing assignment to describe what they saw at the zoo. When she evaluates their assignments, Anne expects more from Josiah, the fourth grader, than she does from Sarah, the first grader. Better spelling, longer sentences, greater vocabulary. Because when we judge, we expect those with the greater education to do better than those with less education, right? Each person is responsible to do their best with what they've been given. Jesus had given Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum and you and, and me an Ivy League education about himself, about his works, about his ways. He expects us to be transformed as a result, to earn high honors in the transformation department. Sodom and Tyre and Sidon, on the other hand, had received very little education, spiritually speaking. And Jesus takes that into account when he judges them. He looks at the light that they've been given and he holds them accountable for what they did with that. At this point, Dale Bruner also points out that Jesus claims to know what cities like Tyre and Sidon would have done had they received the same education that cities like Capernaum received. Bruner makes the interesting suggestion that Jesus may judge those who had no chance to know him based on what he knows they would have done had they had such a chance. 
It, it's an interesting suggestion, and it, it seems to flow out of this passage. Regardless, though, Jesus concludes that these godless cities will actually fare better in the judgment than those religious cities to whom God came, who didn't, or whom Jesus came, who didn't change. Does this mean that in the end, cities like Sodom will be saved? Well, Jesus doesn't say that. And in the end, it's not really our business. It's between them and Jesus. What we do learn, though, is that just as some will get greater rewards in God's kingdom than others, so some will face greater punishment than others. Jesus says this in Luke 12, 47 to 48. The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready and does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does the things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. Okay, let's recap what we've learned about Jesus. First, Jesus is the issue sent by God for the salvation and transformation of the whole world. Second, Jesus wants and expects us to change, to be transformed ourselves. Third, Jesus is not only our Savior, but our judge as well. Fourth, Jesus is the judge of everyone. First, for Christians, and then also for the whole world. And fifth, Jesus' judgment is both fair and appropriate. We're each responsible for what we do with the knowledge of Jesus we have available to us. So what's the message that we need to hear from this passage? We who sit and hear Jesus preached every week, who own multiple Bibles, who can enjoy fellowship with many other Christians. Dale Bruner says about us, the fact is that most of us are a mix of repentance and unrepentance. A part of every Christian heart is not serious. Therefore, we need both Jesus' warm, loving invitation from last Sunday, and we need his stern warning from this Sunday. Jesus has been here. Jesus has and does visit us, welcoming us, inviting us, loving us. He's here to make all things new, healing, restoring, redeeming, making all things good and beautiful, step by step. Now what? Now what? Will we trust him and follow him and keep changing? Or will we go on with business as usual on Monday morning? How we answer that question is the most important decision we will ever make, now or forever. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are so gentle and merciful. And yet you stand up for what's right and you don't hesitate to speak truth when it will be helpful to us, even if it's hard truth. We ask that you'd give us 
open hearts and open ears to hear your hard truth this morning. And that your warning will turn us back to your gentle invitation. That we will take up your yoke and your light burden. And that step by step you will continue your work of transforming us and making us into the people who will one day, when we stand before you, hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in few things. I will put you in charge of many. Amen. Well, here's the challenge for this Sunday. We don't change alone. What Jesus is doing in this world and in us is countercultural. And any sociologist will tell you that any countercultural movement in society never sustains itself for long unless those involved form communities with one another so that like-minded people can keep one another's fires lit, so to speak. That's the second part of our mission statement, right? Knowing God, growing together, showing Christ. So this is the growing together part. And my challenge is for each of us to find a few other Christians who want to follow Jesus and who want to change and keep changing and to meet together regularly to help one another to change if you're not doing that already with a group of people. And if you don't know how to go about this change, then find me or find one of the elders and we'd be happy to get you resources or to train you. That's our job. And if you don't know how to find a few other people, come and talk to us as well and, and we'll help you do that. Because seeing these kind of groups get started is going to be a big focus for us as elders this year. All right, we're going to close with a song. And um, I'm going to invite the uh, CBC Youth Choir. Come on up. I'm not very comfortable leading, so I need a whole choir to hide behind to help me out. Someone could pull the music out of the last page of that Bible and hand it over to me. <laughs> I don't know what to play. Thanks, Emma. This may be a new song for some of you, so join in as soon as you're comfortable with it.
Okay, please join us in saying the benediction. Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory now and forever. Amen. Don't miss the bus. <laughs> Woo!